0: Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast. You are now listening to Season 7 of the show. I'm your host, Rob Hanna. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Oscar Davies. Oscar completed a BA in French and History at King's College London before the GDL and Bar Professional Training Course at City University of London. Oscar was called to the bar in 2018 and was a pupil barrister at Outer Temple Chambers. Oscar is now a barrister at Land Chambers, specializing in commercial, employment, property, civil work, trust, probate, and personal injury. Oscar is the UK's first barrister to publicly identify as non-binary. Oscar has experience as a paralegal at ACK Media Law, a judicial assistant at the Court of Justice of the European Union, interned at Three Stones Building, New York, Believe Digital, and Telegraph Media Group. Oscar also completed marshalling in the Superior Court in the state of North Carolina. Oscar currently provides pro bono advice as part of the organization Advocate and is involved in the three bar. Oscar runs an Instagram page called at non barrister, educating followers on laws affecting non-binary and trans people. Oscar was voted as one of the top 10 outstanding contribution to LGBT plus life by the British LGBT awards 2022. So a very warm welcome, Oscar.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: Great to have you on the show. And before we dive into all your amazing projects, experiences to date, we do have a customary icebreaker question here on the Legally Speaking podcast, which is on a scale of one to 10, 10 being very real, What would you rate the hit TV series Suits in terms of its reality of the law? if
1: you've seen it? So I have seen Suits many years ago. Um, Obviously, it's set in the US, so it's quite difficult to have a frame of reference. But I would probably say about seven in terms of reality accuracy. I think that they obviously, well... Firstly, everyone looks better in suits than they do in real life. I don't think that's controversial. Um, Secondly, they certainly glamorize certain elements of the law. I think the law can be seen as kind of like a sexy profession from the outside. But from the inside, it's not really sexy at all. It's mainly just reading, (laughs) which is... Not that.
0: Yeah, I think you've given a fair justification and with that we're going to move swiftly on to talk all about you. So to begin with, Oscar, do you mind telling our listeners a bit more about your background and career journey?
1: Yeah, sure. Um So I'm a barrister, I work at Lamb Chambers, I have a broad civil practice in property, commercial, employment and international work. Um, and how I got there, well, I suppose I... Uh, did various degrees, and we'll probably come on to that, um, I suppose, in due course.
0: Yeah, well, let's get into that, because you um, completed a a BA in French and History at King's College London before pursuing the route to qualify as a barrister. Where did your interest from within, well, to be a lawyer originally come from?
1: Yeah, so at school, we didn't have the option to study law as an A-level, so it had always been on the cards for me, but I didn't think it was worth studying for an undergrad, because I wasn't sure at that stage whether I definitely wanted to be a lawyer. So I studied French and history because there were subjects that I liked and that I was good at. And I figured, well, I can do this. And then knowing that the law conversion is a classic thing, which probably about 50% of applicants actually do, um, I figured that would work. And for me, well, I suppose doing law and wanting to become a lawyer was a mixture of uh, wanting to challenge my brain because it is intellectually demanding at times um but also in terms of barrister side it was uh, to use my performance skills because i actually have a music background so uh i'm a singer and a clarinetist and a cellist
0: yeah that's super super interesting and i think you know from from there i understood that in 2015 you then interned at Three Stones Building in New York and marshaled in the Superior Court of North Carolina, which is fascinating. Um, what did you find interesting about the American legal system, perhaps different to the, to the UK system?
1: Yeah, so when I was in the States, yeah, I interned at Three Stone Buildings. I worked on a big multi-million pound deposition, which was pretty cool. And I also worked in the labor courts there, which are similar to the employment tribunals here. And then when I was shadowing judge Joe Craig in the North Carolina, that was all sorts of cases. There was murder trials. Uh, it was a lot of drama. So it was interesting because this was actually before I'd done my law conversion or anything. So I was kind of thrown into the American system actually before I knew the English system. So that was really interesting.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, sometimes the best way is to be thrown into the, to the deep end. Cause you, you know, you can, you can get learning pretty, pretty damn quick, but in, um, 2019, as we move through, you know, your, your, your career today, you worked as a, a judicial assistant in the chambers of, of Judge Chris Provider, I believe. So how did you get that amazing opportunity to many of our listeners listening in? And, and what did you learn as a judicial assistant at the Court of Justice of the European Union?
1: Yeah, so to give you an idea of the timeline, so I did my French and history degree and then I did my law conversion and then I did the bar course. I applied for pupillage during the law conversion course. Uh, which I didn't get it that year. I didn't really know any law at the time. I was about four months in. And then I also applied in the bar course and that's when I got pupillage. So uh, because they start a year and a half in advance, I basically had a year gap. So in that year gap, I paralegaled and I also worked at the European Court of Justice. I got this opportunity. Actually, it was via a tutor. I studied at City University London, my bar course. And it was um, via my tutor who'd sent around an email saying, oh, the European Court of Justice is looking for an intern. So, and with my French background, it meant that because in the ECJ, they work in French and English. So it meant that I knew there wasn't so many English people who actually know French. So I kind of had good chances for it. And that was an amazing experience because I got to be in the kind of heart of the, you know, the highest um, European judicial decision-making, see how they made decisions with the judges, because they often will have uh, eight to 10 judges all deciding on one issue. and. Even seeing how they draft the judgments was super interesting and, and also doing research points on various issues. I did a Google France case, which was about the territoriality of dereferencing, which is the right to be forgotten, which some of your listeners may know. Um, so that was really interesting. And I think I was one of the last <laughs> one of the last intern- British interns before Brexit, because then the uh, England- the British judge, Judge Vider, had to move back to England that late. <laughs>
0: Fascinating, though. And and like you say, such great experience very early on, you know, being in in the thick of it, you touched on it there. But just to sort of bring it back, you you did spend a year, at um, I believe, ACK Media Law as a a paralegal. And, you know, a lot of people are very grateful for their paralegal experience. They feel it gives them a lot of the basic skills um, that sets them up. But what types of cases did you work on? And how did you find working as paralegal?
1: Yeah, so the background to this is that uh, the pupillage where I'd originally got was at a set called One Brick Court, and they're a media law set, so they do defamation, privacy, these types of things. So in preparation for that, I said, okay, well, it makes sense if I do a media law paralegal, just so I've got more experience in that area. Um, so I worked at ACK, and they're a boutique media media law firm in Bond Street, really great. Um, and I learned all sorts of things like. Uh, you know, writing cease and desist letters to to our clients and stopping people using their trademarks um, or going to the Royal Courts of Justice and trying to persuade a master to accept our application. They would just send me along and be like, oh, well, Oscar, you have pupillage. You must be good at persuading, even though I was a paralegal. So it was kind of, uh, it was interesting because I got to do all sorts of cases and lots of them were representing big newspapers, were in defamation cases. So... Yeah, it was very varied but also useful experience. I think it really uh prepared me not so much for drafting, but but just for the general background of of I suppose barrister life. I mean the the twist is that the chambers where I got pupillage at one Wombrick Court dissolved before I started pupillage. So um then I had to get an emergency pupillage at which then became out which was out of temple. But that's another story. <laughs>
0: And that's a story we're going to dive into, actually, because I think it's <laughs> it, it, it makes sense. Because after your call to the bar in 2018, you, like you say, you're a pupil barrister at, out of Temple Chambers. So what were your experiences of being a pupil barrister? And for people maybe aspiring to get there, what would be your top tips um, for sort of how to stand out as a pupil barrister?
1: Well, being a pupil barrister is hard because you have to show flair and intellectual rigour whilst also being silent and following your supervisor like some sort of sheep. So it's a bit of a strange catch-22. And something that I found quite hard, uh, you know, being an outspoken person was to be a kind of Victorian child almost, like be seen but not heard as a pupil. Um, So I found that quite challenging. But um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that the basic points are work hard on your paperwork, um, listen to your supervisor, take on all their advice. They want to see growth at the end of the day. Like if, if you start weak and you end strong, they also get a good feel good factor because they think they've shaped you and all this kind of thing. So I think that's probably the main things. And also, yeah, from my experience, like don't speak unless you're spoken to, which is kind of sad, but it's the, it's what the system is like. <laughs>
0: Okay, so that kind of what one of my mentors said to me, Rob, two ears, one mouth, you know, make sure you use them in the right proportion. So I guess that kind of mirrors that a little bit. Um, In in March 21, then, um, you then joined uh, Lamb Chambers, and you have broad practice, super broad, actually, sort of commercial property, civil work, trust, probate, personal injury, you know, there's a lot there. Um, So what does a typical day look like for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the broad practice keeps me on my toes. If anything, the whole experience of One Brick Court dissolving as a specialist media set kind of um, you know, rang alarm bells for me of specializing too early because then it's harder to specialize first and then broaden out rather than vice versa. Start broad and then specialize. I think it's easier to do that way. Um, but yeah, a typical day or maybe a typical week is probably easier to describe. So I'm probably in court or tribunal, say like three or four times a week. And usually there'll be like employment tribunal hearings, uh, preliminary hearings or main trials. Then I'll do a few like small claims, just kind of like easy cases just to fill the diary. And then sometimes I'll do more important ones like high court or uh, court of appeal stuff, which usually you're led. So that will be the in court stuff. So that's kind of like three or four a week. And then I'll have written work and, for me, I usually have about like three or four paperwork deadlines a week. So this is drafting, which is you draft the pleadings, i.e. how the court sees the story and you have to kind of have a certain technique doing that. Um, Or drafting advices, which is usually for solicitors saying, oh, I think this has prospects of success or not. Um, And then also I have like all my kind of pro bono stuff, which is um, similar things to this, or you know, advocating on behalf of like trans non-binary people, which is the stuff that I also do. So I'd say that's probably a typical week.
0: Yeah, busy, and yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get on to um the other stuff that you do because it's it's hugely important and something that we support here on the Legally Speaking podcast. But you were, I believe, what the UK's first barrister to publicly identify as, as non-binary. So how did you feel when this made the headlines back in twenty twenty?
1: Yeah, so this was, I think, the. So I'd actually started my third sixth pupilage at, at LAM in October 2020, and that's meant to be for six months. Um, I did it for five months because they said, well, you're clearly ready uh, to just be a tenant. So then at the start of March, I got tenancy, which was great because it meant that the whole rat race of, you know, getting pupilage, uh, getting tenancy was kind of over, which is nice. Um, and then. Yeah, it was our kind of manager um, slash admin person, Sarah, who I was like, I've been like close with since the start. And she was like, oh, um, Oscar, I know that you're non-binary. How do you want the Chambers board to be written? Because everyone who's a tenant has like Dr. Natalia or Mr. or Ms. or Mrs. And so arising from that question, I was like, well, the, the gender neutral one is MX which is pronounced mix. So it'd be like mixed Davies. And, um, yeah, I, d- I basically just decided to put that down kind of thinking, oh, well that's, you know, that properly represents my, my non-binary identity. And then I did that and then it got painted on and I just tweeted it and I was like, oh, maybe this is like, a, you know, I don't know. I don't think this has been done before kind of thing, but not really thinking anything of it. And then it kind of went viral on legal Twitter. Like it we've got like a thousand likes and like loads of retweets. And then and then uh, all of these people chiming in like, "Oh, I think this is the first one." And then, and then Legal Cheek covered it, um, and then the Times covered it, and then Reuters covered it. So it kind of gained traction, but it was a bit random in a way because I, I almost, you know, I just I remember just making this tweet on Friday afternoon, being like, "Oh, well, I'm out of court, so let's just like do something that's more fun than um, going back to my papers." and then um yeah so that's how it happened so I feel like with these types of things it it can be quite serendipitous when um you gain some sort of traction um but honestly it was quite well received I would say like I didn't receive that much pushback because uh, well I mean of course all of the work of non-binary and trans people before me which you have to give credit to but also I think um in the legal world and this is probably applicable to all of your listeners or at least everyone who's on the podcast is that reputation matters so much that if people know that that voicing their opinion is not going to be popular they generally won't do it because it will be bad for their reputation so in a way I've kind of benefited from that trope of of working in legal because basically I'm sure that there's people who think I'm absolutely crazy and I'm like making this all up and stuff but luckily generally speaking they don't really voice it and you know i always say like the dinosaurs are going to die out soon so i'm not really concerned about that type of attitude um especially if it's not really voiced to me you know the general principle is anyone can think what they like but whether they express it or manifest it is then another question and that's whole like article 10 and then derogations on it on it well in a convention sense um you know you can't just have hate speech there's certain limits to freedom of speech so in a similar way I think that there's um I've been quite lucky in terms of the reception um there's obviously the occasional person who is like well kind of come for me and stuff but in general I mean I always have very thick skin so I don't really care I'm just like if they say I'm deluded I'll say well you've got too much time on your hands so go attack someone else please
0: (laughs) yeah it's it's True. So I, I, you know, I, you know, I've done some LinkedIn audio with, with, with Gary Vee, if people are on social media be familiar with, with, with him and, you know, he, he almost looks at it the other way. If, you know, people are are saying nasty things online, you know, he's he almost like feels for them because there's maybe something internally, you know, that they're maybe just struggling with, and they're using this as an outlet just to, for whatever reason. So I always say, you know, unless you really understand someone's situation, like always treat people with respect and, and, and just be, gracious. But uh, let's let's move it on, because I want to talk more about non binary. So I think it's important that we do educate our our listeners, because there are now, I believe, around 30,000 non binary individuals in the UK, who need protection. So what are some of the key issues for those who identify as non binary? What do they face in terms of law?
1: Yeah so just as a preface the 30,000 figure for non-binary people was taken from the census the 2021 census um, you have to take it with a pinch of salt as with all stats because it will be the people who have self-declared as non-binary and from what I recall from the census I don't think you could put down non-binary and trans man and trans woman whereas it's generally understood that about 50% of trans men and trans women also identify as non-binary. So the figure is probably actually higher. And then that's notwithstanding all the people that don't want to put it down for whatever reasons. So the figure is probably actually higher than 30,000. It just so happens in terms of this question, I'm writing a book about this at the moment. I was approached in January by a publisher to write a book on non-binary recognition. So watch this space, but um, that's basically, yeah, it will come out like in the next 12 months or so. The main issues are... The facts, well, there's a few things. Firstly, um, non-binary people are not properly protected under the equality laws that we have in this country at the moment. So there was a case of Taylor and Jaguar Land Rover uh, where Ms. Taylor was a non-binary trans person and it was considered for the first time that non-binary could fall under the gender reassignment section in the Equality Act. However, that's only a first instance decision and is quite fragile So um, there is a danger that it's not actually protected. And also the Equality Act and any other equality legislation does not actually mention the word non-binary because I think it's, you know, it's only been really used in the last five to 10 years, even though the concept is not new. So that's the first issue. Uh, The second issue is that there is currently no Xs on passports at the moment. By that, I mean, um, on the sex or gender section, currently you can have M or F, uh, whereas in the case of Christy Alan Kane, who I've just been in touch with actually, incidentally, um, their case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. And basically, the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to allow X passports, despite about 15 other countries allowing them New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, all these places allow Xs on passports for a gender neutral option. But basically, the Supreme Court said, no, we're not going to do it. So I understand that the case is now on application to the European Court of Human Rights to see whether it's a breach of Article 8 uh, right to private life. So that all is a TBC. Um, So those are the the general issues. And the more broad ones, I suppose, are uh, non-binary people and gender non-conforming people in general face violence from people on a day-to-day, including my friends and myself. So it's kind of, um, you know, you need the legal... Framework to protect you from the physical violence that happens. Otherwise, the physical violence happens, and you may not be protected. Um, so that's basically part of the the issue that non-binary people face at the moment in the UK.
0: No, and and, and thank you for being very candid and open about that, and, and also giving some really clear I- examples, which probably leads nicely onto what you were, you're touching on there. You kind of touched on it, but maybe to go a bit deeper, what are some of the significant changes you think need to be made to the law? Now,
1: yeah. So, changes. I think non-binary non-binary recognition needs to happen on a substantive level and a social level. By that, I mean substantively, legally, it needs to be written into the legislation, into equality legislation, saying non-binary is protected, can be a protected characteristic, um, and is protected just as sexuality is protected or race is protected. Um, So, that's the first thing. The second thing is that. I mean, I don't know why on earth it's been so difficult for the government to allow X's on passports. The countries, for example, that do have X's on passports have not gone into constitutional crisis. Their systems haven't collapsed. So the whole um, matter of, oh, well, we can't do it is, to be honest, ideological pushback, which to me just isn't good enough. Um, And so there needs to be change there. I mean, there was the Women's and Select Committee uh, report in December 2021, which basically said, Yes, we appreciate non-binary um, is real and um, you know should have protection, but we just like aren't doing it right now, uh, and that kind of answer is just not really good enough for people like me and the thirty thousand plus people who exist in the country. Um, so that's kind of what needs to happen, and the social, um, I suppose, recognition is that part of what I want to explain in my book is is how non-binary does have a material reality; it's not just a feeling. Um, it does have a material reality, it does play out, and it is real. I think a lot of the issues is that people think, well, oh, you're just attention-seeking or you're, you're just trying to be uh, contrarian or something. And it's like, no, no, as in I truly see my gender as existing beyond the binary genders or existing completely outside that system. And the way you get there is, is individual to each non-binary person. I mean, for me, for example... Um, it. I kind of always knew that there was some sort of dissonance between the gender and sex that I was assigned, uh, i.e. male slash man, and then how I felt internally, just as maybe a trans a trans woman will have a strong dissonance between their gender, internal gender, and the sex they've been assigned. But mine is not really the same as that. And then once I started in my French and history degree Uh, learning about, um, I suppose, feminism in the sense of Judith Butler, Simone de Beauvoir, learning that gender is performed and you can basically make your gender in terms of your own perception vis-a-vis perception of others. It made me realise that the gender binary is kind of a trap that you can basically opt out of. And that's not to say that sex-based Uh, discrimination and violence doesn't exist obviously it does I would never say that but it's more like we're treated in the way that we are because of the gender that we're perceived to be as a social construct so if you can then redo your gender um, then that means you can kind of free yourself from the shackles of that binary um, and binaristic thinking so that's kind of where my my point of view comes from and it's not going to be the same for all non-binary people but that's just how I see it and And the law doesn't really, obviously law is based in linguistic framework and it doesn't sit very easily when non-binary can seem to many as a kind of ungraspable thing. And so I think there's a natural tension there between um, trying to define something which is quite hard to explain because it's so experiential and it's so individual versus the law which needs to categorize everything and to make everything as specific as it can so that the ramifications of uh transgressing the law for example can actually be felt
0: yeah no thank you so so much for giving such a, a sort of detailed and an important um answer it's super super helpful for our our listeners to to educate them more themselves more on this time for a short break from the show Are you looking for a way to get your firm working more efficiently and profitably while ensuring a better work-life balance for your team? Well, if you haven't considered our sponsor Clio, I'm here to strongly recommend that you do. I absolutely love working with Clio. Not only is it the world's leading legal practice management and legal client relationship management software, it also has a really solid core mission to transform the legal experience for all, something I personally support. What sets Clio apart for me, is their dedication to customer success and support. There are lots of legal softwares out there, but I know from talking to Clio users that their support offering is miles ahead of the rest with their 24-5 availability via email, in-app chat and over the phone. Yes, you can actually call in and speak to someone. Clio is also the G2 crowd leader in legal practice management in comparison to 130 legal practice management softwares and has been for the last 14 consecutive quarters g2 crowd is the world's leading business solutions review website you can check Clio's full list of features and pricing at www.clio.com forward slash legally speaking that's www.clio.com forward slash legally dash speaking now back to the show Um, let's talk a bit more about the legal system you, you again you've been touching on it but how far does the legal system need to develop to ensure it is inclusive and represents everyone in the society
1: um i would say very far <laughs> i think part of the issue is that uh in the uk we have a system which allegedly kind of sets itself out to be uh, equal to everyone but we all know that's not the case like we all know that uh, poc people have are worse treated by the police um in various ways for example stop and search which is only a you know a, a small thing in terms of the wider wider principles there's also issues which are kind of ai related issues such as uh fingerprinting or um camera scanning of faces and these being like both racist and misogynistic so i think i think that the The issue is that the legal system purports to uphold equality for all. But in practice, i.e. the way that that language is then translated in practice does not always um, come through in terms of inclusive inclusivity and and avoiding discrimination. And that's why the the government is constantly being challenged in judicial reviews, because that you know that's the purpose of a judicial review is to challenge the government and to challenge its policies so i think we are quite far from ensuring it's it's inclusive and represents everyone in society and partly to be honest that is due to the people who make the law and and keep up the law there's massive race issues for example and gender gaps in terms of politicians the judiciary um the police i think in all of them there's massive pay gaps in terms of gender. And there's also basically a white uh, majority r- ruling POC minority, which even if there's percentages similar to that, I think that the percentage of the, the white majority is always higher in those kind of positions of power. So, yeah, I would say it needs to go very far.
0: <laughs> yeah, but, you know, th- this is the reality. And this is why, you know, on the show, we we really want to talk about the topics that need to be discussed. So, um, yeah, thanks once again for sharing your your thoughts on that let's talk a little bit more about some of your um your sort of pr because in your interview with legal futures you explain how you have to endure judges using the incorrect form of address you state sometimes i correct them sometimes i don't to be honest it depends on how complicated the case is and how much energy i have at that time to correct a judge who you need to get on your side So how can judges take proactive steps to make sure they address those in court correctly?
1: Yeah, I think it can actually be done before you even reach the judge, because when you go to court, you have to sign in with an usher or a clerk, and usually they will take your name. And so if I'm signing in with one of them, I'll say, "Okay, so it's Oscar Davies. And they'll usually put down Mr. Davies because they don't put your first name. And so then, if I can be bothered on that day, I'll say, Oh, no, it's uh, MX Davies. And um, generally, they, they I mean, sometimes they get very confused, but me- mainly they're pretty good at being like, Oh, okay, fine. And so, if you've written down, if they've written down, sorry, then they'll pass that to the judge and then you, they can kind of pre warn the judge about that. So, I think that that's a good way um, to get the usher to do it. And then, if it's a remote hearing, which still probably 50% of my hearings are remote or maybe even more. You can um write in on on your name, so I write MX Oscar Davies in instead of just omitting it, because if I omit it, they'll just assume Mister. So sometimes I think the kind of the the emphasis is still on me at this stage, even though you could argue it, it shouldn't necessarily have to be. But um, if I put that down, then the judge has the option of getting it right. Um, they sometimes just think it's a typo, which is always a bit annoying, but um yeah basically i think that's a way you can kind of pre-warn the judge to to get the correct pronouns and stuff
0: yeah no again it's a great little tip that you shared there um before it even starts as well like you say with the the ushers so thanks for uh for sharing that so in 2022 i believe sort of robert lachlan the sra's executive director of operations performance outlined People from trans and non-binary communities are often marginalised and may need to access more than most. So what can those in the legal profession be doing to provide extra support?
1: Um, First, you can include your pronouns under your email uh, signature. It's very easy. It's no skin off your back. Yes, you may look woke, but it's going to help trans people uh, massively, because when they do it, it's then less seen as a weird thing. That's the first very easy thing that you can do. Uh, second is that you can ensure that your law firm or wherever you work has a trans uh, transition policy. That's really important. They're not obligatory at the moment, but they're definitely recommended. Uh, I mean, for example, the Taylor and Jaguar Land Rover case is a good example where Jaguar Land Rover had no transition policy. And they just dealt with it extremely poorly. And then they basically, Rose Taylor was successful in their complaint against them. So um, I think it's really important. And also, I mean, as legal professionals, you should know that trans people are one of the most vilified in society, both by the media and sometimes even by the government. And so I think you kind of have a duty to assist when when you can for a trans person to just exist in an equal way. I think a lot of the time, the the kind of what is the media considers to be the trans issues are massively blown out of proportion. But actually all that a trans person wants or a non-binary person is to be treated with the same respect as you would treat anyone else. It's just a basic fundamental uh kind of human rights point. And it's not anything special. Like they don't want to be treated any better. They just want to be able to go to the toilet in peace and to have the correct name on the, their birth certificate. Like it's honestly not asking that much. But I think, unfortunately, the way that these issues are discussed and the kind of public discourse can be extremely um, harmful and can make unsafe environments. So, if you can render the environment for a trans person more safe in your workplace, then a person will feel more at ease. I mean, you maybe you may think that you know no trans people, but in fact, the reality is that the current um, the current reality of being a trans person is like full of violence. And I'm sure that there are people that you know who are trans, but they're too scared to come out as trans. So you may say, oh, well, I don't know any trans people. It's like, you might be sitting right next to a trans person, but they are too scared to come out as trans because either to themselves, it's too scary or or because the public is too scary to them. I always think, you know, it's an interesting concept. I'm not trans because I say I'm trans. I'm trans because you say that I'm trans and because you treat me as such um yeah
0: no it's yeah again i'm just sort of you know really absorbing what you're saying and you know certain challenges that that, that the individuals are are having to go through day day by day and that's why it's so important the work that you're doing to to raise awareness and to push for change and this leads on to what i want to talk about now which is very important in modern society we can't escape it which is social media because you've utilized your instagram page for good so you know the at non-binary barrister to shine a light on the matters of Affecting those who are trans or non binary. Can you give us some examples of topics you have educated your followers on?
1: Yeah. So I try to basically, my intention with that page um, is to make legal developments easily digestible so as to democratize the law, because the law, as lots of your listeners will know, can be extremely opaque at times. And you sometimes do think, I wonder if the law does it on purpose so that lawyers keep their jobs. And that's not really my vibe. So, um, yeah, I try to basically explain the, these developments for, for trans people, because I think it's important that trans people know where they stand um, in terms of legal and policy issues. So, for example, I'll often kind of do like a case digest in in an infographic format, for example, like the Bell and Tavistock case, which was about when um when like teenagers can take hormones or um yeah the elan kane case which we've spoken about about the ex-passports or taylor and jaguar land over the first non-binary case and i'll basically kind of set them out and then the other things is when the government will release um some guidance or something similar to that with regards to trans people and and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and i kind of try and i try and be kind of impartial with in terms of what i release because I think it's important that people make up views and also I mean the, the issue is that there's so much transphobia and turfism um trans exclusionary and radical feminism versus um trans trans people who are centrist but also trans people who are who are very far onto the other side of things and I see myself as kind of like almost a mediator I mean obviously I, I'm non-binary so my my kind of interest obviously falls on one side of that that spectrum, But at the same time, I do think it's important to give like nuanced perspectives um, because that's what you have to do in, in law all the time. It's never just black and white, like everything is grayscale and there's always nuance. And that's what I try to give in my posts, even though they're kind of simplified and stuff, because, um, yeah, I think it's important that people make up their own minds about some piece of news I mean having said that recently I haven't actually had time because I've been doing my book so it's been a bit low on the ground in terms of like uh, legal development side stuff but yeah.
0: But you do do a lot and I think it's super helpful and you've done an amazing job Um, and you also provide um, you know pro bono advice and representation as part of Advocate as well so how do you assist members of the public?
1: Yeah so the general rule is that as a barrister you have to be instructed by a solicitor Um, because they send you your instructions. You can only be instructed by a member of public if you are what's called direct access qualified. Um, I actually am direct access qualified. I did the course a while ago. So I can be instructed by members of public directly. And Advocate is basically the charity which connects barristers to members of public who don't have financial means to raise the the legal funds themselves. And yeah, I mean, Advocate is a great organization. They have loads of amazing full-time workers, caseworkers and volunteers who basically kind of do the connections and they send you out a newsletter with, and you tick all of your areas of law. And then I basically I'll, I'll look at the newsletter, I think it's like once a month or something and I'll see, okay, is there, one, do I have capacity? Because obviously my actual practice is really busy anyway. And two, if I do then can i take on this case or can i do that and i think it's it's very beneficial for the member of public who you're helping like for example i did an employment case this guy he was disabled and he basically worked at this big retailer and been dismissed for not really a good reason um so we managed to get him 20k as a settlement after having done a few hearings which was you know for like can be a life-changing amount for some people so um, it is obviously you really help someone and they're really grateful and it, it really does go to show that you can really use your skills to help someone directly. Um, I mean, I also have people who approach me through my Instagram page who I sometimes help pro bono. So it's kind of a mixture of that and the advocate work I do, but, um, it's really fulfilling. And the other, the other thing I suppose on the lawyer side of things is that you can, uh, you can, because your help is inevitably going to be more helpful than no one taking the case at all you can also do areas which are not necessarily your practice area so like you know if I wanted to I could um, sign up to a criminal case and like and you know try and help in that regard um, so it can also actually be quite helpful if you want to kind of uh, bro- broaden your practice areas not that I need to do that personally but like you can you can also do that.
0: Yeah fascinating points and and, and great tips and, and and insights um sticking with the the work that you do because you're also involved with Free Bar so for those who may not have heard about it before can you tell us more what it's all about
1: yeah so free bar is an organization which um foregrounds lgbt plus people who work at the bar so it's not just restricted to barristers; it can also be staff so clerks uh ceos of chambers and basically, anyone adjacent and students, which can be like bar bar students or law students as well, I think. And the point being is that the bar can seem like a very small, C conservative profession in that it may not be that welcoming to LGBT plus people. And I think Free Bar was set up um, a few years ago now with the intention of kind of removing that p- perhaps stigma, because certainly for me when I was considering, okay, barrister or solicitor, one of the things on the cons for my barrister list was that I may not be able to be myself because it seemed like a kind of pale male stale situation uh which was not necessarily welcoming to like my type of person but then I I I was glad that I like pushed on because then I actually saw that the bar was less inside I could see that it was less like that than I thought it obviously depends where you work and what your team is like and what your colleagues like but in my experience people are actually you know well educated um they're they're not really they don't really like have time to discriminate against you really well so much I mean I think it's different in different minorities obviously you have uh, Alexander Wilson who's written a lot about the uh, issues of being like a black barrister for example But yeah, in terms of LGBT issues, the point of Free Bar is like visibility. And we just finished our visibility project last last year, where we did about 50 profiles of all different types of people, judges, barristers, clerks, um, basically saying, telling their story. And you can see that on the Free Bar, type in Free Bar visibility, um, the website will come up and you can see all the nice pictures with everyone and their little testimonials. Um, So yeah, it's really just a matter of, oh, and also Free Bar organizes uh, like social events where you can actually cross meet people from all different types of Paris world because I think you know networking mentoring is really important in terms of especially in the LGBT plus community like if it really is a community as as it alleges to be which can be disparate at times but like it's important to have that solidarity within the minority.
0: Yeah, and we, we really support uh, networking, mentoring, and all of that good stuff here on the, the show. And that leads to my sort of final question. Uh, a fascinating conversation, Oscar, is um, as a mentor you know, at Bridge the Bar, what advice would you give to aspiring barristers who are currently applying for pupillage? Maybe one or two tips.
1: Um, well, the starting point is that you have to make sure your application fulfills all the Tick box exercises. By that I mean have to have done some pro bono, so like free representation unit or citizen advice bureau or something. So that's a tick box you need to do. Second, you need to have done some moot, i.e., fake court, and you ideally will have placed in some of them, i.e., got to semi-finals or finals, or you will have got an advocacy prize from them. Thirdly, you it's it's much better if you have some sort of scholarships. And you can think quite broadly about this. Like, you know, you could have got a scholarship in something that you don't think is relevant, but you should put it down anyway because it shows some degree of exceptionality. Um, and four is obviously uh, intellectual rigor. Like, if you can and you're still at your undergrad level, try really hard to get first because ultimately that's what the chamber's like. It's not a requirement, but it'll make your life probably much easier if you're able to do that. Um, and fifthly, or fourthly, I can't remember. Um, you need to do mini-pupillages and try and start doing them as early as possible. If you were to look at my CV timeline, um, I started doing mini-pupillages when I was in my undergrad degree in French and history because I knew how crazy it was to get into the bar. And I was like, okay, well, let me just start all my legal stuff during my non-law undergrad because at least then when I get to my law conversion, uh, because by the time I got to my law conversion, I'd done like two mini pupillages and then I could get like... Three other mini privileges without much of an issue. Sometimes the hardest thing is the starting point. So yeah, I'd say you need to do all those things as just the basics, and then you need to work on your application as if it's an advocacy persuasion exercise. You're persuading them that you're a brilliant candidate and that they they have no choice but to take you um, because you're so amazing. And obviously, you need to not not you need to toe the line between bragging and uh saying why you're great, but you need to really try and show how you're an asset and you would be an asset. And also just examples of persuasion in the past. Like I did, for example, like a door knocking internship for a charity and I signed up the most in like the region. And I was like, well, this shows that I'm clearly really good at sales, which means that I'm good at persuasion, which means in theory that you should be good in court. So and you can really do this like anywhere. You can you could have persuaded a customer like you know, to pay their full fee, even though you spill their drink on them or something, you know, it's kind of like, you can really think laterally about it. And sometimes the most creative stories are the most memorable for the interview panel. So uh, don't be afraid to um, actually put something interesting in your application. But I preface that with saying all of the tick boxes, volunteer, mini pupillage, academics have to be there. Otherwise, it will be difficult to make it further than the interview stage.
0: Yeah, no, fantastic answer, and I'll just encourage people if you are at that stage to rewind that, listen to that, write all those comments down because uh, really, really invaluable uh, insights there. Oscar, it's been it's been great. Um, if our listeners, which I'm sure they will, want to learn more about your career, your Instagram page, Lamb Changes, Bridget the Bar, all the amazing things you're doing uh what's the best way for them to get in touch with you feel free to share any of your social media handles we'll also share them with this episode for you
1: too. yes um so my instagram is at non-binary barrister which has been mentioned on there on the bio you can actually see that there's a link tree which is basically links all of my other things which includes my twitter my twitter is at oscar underscore davies underscore and in terms of getting in contact with me on my link tree on the instagram which has all of my different links on for like articles and stuff uh it says how you can contact my clerk my clerk joe and he's the first port of call and then he'll show me any emails that are sent to me so if you want to contact me for like uh work or like any questions and stuff you can feel free to do that via my clerk. um and yeah i think that's pretty much i mean basically just go on the link tree and it's got like 15 links so it can that's the shortcut i think there you go yeah,
0: to the link tree and you'll be sorted from there. Well, thank you so, so much, Oscar. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show, learning more about your experiences, learning more about um, all the work that you're trying to do and the change that you're trying to make and the legacy you're trying to leave. So we fully support that at the Leading week Podcast. But now, from all of us on the show, over and out. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you like the content here, why not check out our world-leading podcast content and collaboration hub the legally speaking club over on discord go to our website www.legallyspeakingpodcast.com for the link to join our community there over and out